The world is wild and wonderful. There's so much yet to know. So here we are with questions. It's a what in the Sam Hill show. We've done the math. We've read the books. We've searched through archives. Oh, we're nerds and we're letting our freak flag fly. Letting it fly. Oh, we're nerds and we're letting our freak flag fly. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the What in the Sam Hill podcast, where I nerd out over the mystical, preternatural, and downright weird in my quest to understand the inner workings of the universe. Today, we will be boomering through this audio. I did attempt to get a new microphone, which, I mean, it is a new microphone, but I can't figure out the buzzing. It may be that I just bought a crappy microphone. I accept that. Uh, It may also be that I am 85 years old inside, and so I have no idea what I'm doing. But if you aren't boomering through the audio, are you even starting a podcast? I'm not sure. Today, we will be discussing banshees, known as the caning woman or the wailing woman in Irish folklore. So what is the banshee? Could banshees be real? Is this a case of misidentification? We will discuss. Um, So... As a bit of a disclaimer, I'll say that this entire concept is based on Celtic folklore. And I will be mostly discussing Irish folklore, but the same concept exists in Scottish and Welsh folklore. Um, Obviously, there's a bit of a difference in the language, uh, especially with the Welsh, but the concept is the same, if not, um, that it is quite similar. In general, Celtic folklore is a bit of a sticky wicket, so unlike, for example, the Romans, um, the Celts and their folklore have been bastardized uh, by a few different sources. So there was obviously the concerted campaign to stamp out the ancient religion of Ireland by the Catholic Church and St. Patrick. Um, Those snakes that St. Patrick banished were actually pagans, not literal snakes. And then there were conquerings by Normans, by Vikings, and of course, the English. So as a result, we are wading through very muddy water, and some traditions are just lost forever. But even though finding the truth is impossible, it is still fun to try. So what is a banshee? Well, we spell it B-A-N-S-H-E-E. But in reality, or in the Irish, um... It's actually B-E-A-N space S-I-D-H-E, and there's a fada in there as well, or it's B-E-A-N space S-I-fada, and ban, uh, ban, it means woman in the Irish, and then she, and No matter if it's spelled S-I-D-H-E or S-I, it's still pronounced she. Uh, The Irish is weird like that. But she is a reference to what is known as a fairy mound, and we will come back to those later. Um, So essentially it's woman of the fairy mound. Now the wailing of the banshee is believed to foretell the death of a member of the family of whoever hears it. And supposedly it's tied to a specific bloodline. So, like, each family of pure Irish descent would have their own banshee. 
Um, no word on the ba the families that uh, don't have pure Irish descent. Um, I guess you uh, may or may not find out what's going on. Um, but there is overlap between the goddesses of Ireland and the descriptions of the Banshee. So, in general, um, I was always taught that the Banshee came looking like an old woman or a crone, and that is what's most typical in Scotland. But there are legends that talk about the Banshee coming as a, a maid, a mother, or a crone. So a young woman, a more like middle-aged, you know, that mother age, or, um, or a crone, so the older woman. And that's supposedly depending on the needs and the predicament of the person witnessing the Banshee. But that three forms idea is also found in the various triple goddesses of Irish folklore. Most notably, we would have the Morrigan, who, um, depending on the legend, could have been a triple being all on her own, or was part of a triple entity with her two sisters. And then other traits that the Banshee shares with the Morrigan, Danu, and other goddesses are that the Banshee can supposedly shapeshift into animal forms, and it's uh, associated with the raven or the crow. Um, again, it depends on the legend, it depends on the source. Uh, that's part of the bastardization process is that nothing really aligns across the board, um, but that is something that you see in various forms of the legends. It's also um, associated with vengeance, righteous vengeance, um, a sense of, of justice, if you will, if the clan was wronged in some way. But typically the Banshee is a messenger of death. And then the Banshee is also associated with winter, um, but that's because it's a derivative of the association with death, death itself. Now, the Banshee is part of what's known as the Ishi, so that is A-O-S space S-I Fada. Again, the Irish is, is um, a bit of a, a different kind of pronunciation than most of us um, English speakers are used to, but A-O in Irish is a diphthong that's pronounced E. So, for example, um, Saoirse Ronan is probably the most common or the most famous example that Americans and um, English would know. So, uh, Saoirse Ronan, obviously famous actress, her first name is S-A-O-I-R-S-E. And so, um, that A-O becomes an I sound. The S in front of her, in the, in the beginning of her name, becomes a sh because the A-O is a I sound, or an E sound, really. Um, the I becomes an I, and then you've got the R, and the S becomes a sh also because it is uh, next to the E at the end. So it's, it's, actually, I guess the S at the beginning isn't so much of a sh, it's, yeah, but it kind of blends together, but it's seersha. And that actually, that means freedom in Irish. But anyway, the point is, the Ishi are the kind of parent grouping of the Banshee. And the Ishi, or people of the fairy mounds, are fairies. 
and um, or what we would kind of know as fairies, uh, not in the Tinkerbell sense, but in the um, true Irish sense of the word. Now, some say these are fallen angels, but I think that's probably the Christian influences that are just rewriting those ancient legends, right? Because um, obviously uh, the Irish legends themselves wouldn't refer to them this way. Um, the Irish legends, they are, they come with many names. Um, fey folk, fair folk, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but they're but they're not. They don't have the same concept of angel as we do in a Christian sense of the word. But she, S H S I Fada, um, it possibly means immortal. So at the very least, perhaps we're looking at like a more long-lived version of a standard human. But obviously, fairies in Irish folklore have a lot more to them than just uh, being long-lived. But that's interesting that the she originally possibly meant immortal. Now, the Ishi are a later version of the Tua de Danon. And again, I mean, obviously with all of these Irish words, I'm probably not pronouncing them correctly, but they definitely don't. Uh, look like how I'm saying them. They don't. They're not pronounced how they look. Irish is not a phonetic language. Um, but the Tuatanannan are the ancient gods, let's say, of Irish folklore. They're both prominent characters of Irish folklore. And the fact that the Ishi are a later version of the Tuatanannan, it it kind of means that they are a watered down version. Um, after the Catholic, Roman, Norman, Viking influences chewed up Irish mythology and just spit it back out. Um, so, to me, if we're going to figure out really what the Banshee is, we're going to have to look at the Tuatanannan. And the Tuatanannan are fascinating. So, originally they were actually just known as the Tuatay, but um, they became known as the Tuatanannan because of the a strong association with Danu, which uh, I mentioned her earlier a little bit in references in reference to the the shape shifting and the association with the Raven Crow. But Danu was the most popular Irish goddess in a way, um, and so she kind of became known as like the mother goddess over all of the gods. And that's a little bit different than, say, like the uh, Greco-Roman traditions where you've got the Zeus-Jupiter character being the most prominent god among the Olympians. Here we've got Danu, which is a female goddess, as the most prominent. So the Tua Dananan, like I said, were the ancient gods of Irish folklore. Um, although they're not necessarily spoken of as gods in the same way as Greco-Roman. Um, so a lot of times you'll see where like a, it references a king or um, a king becoming a god uh, more along the lines of almost the demigods of Greco-Roman mythology um, but they can't carried the same weight as the uh, Olympians as far as uh, within the culture so 
one thing I wanted to mention was that the Tua de Danon are known for having their four treasures. And these treasures are the Stone of Destiny, also known as the Coronation Stone, the Spear of Lu, the Sword of Light, or the Sword of Nuada, and the Cauldron of Dagda. And some people think that these are actually references to four different constellations to mark the year as like a type of calendar. Um, but to me, I see these associations as uh, strongly correlating with the four elements of alchemy and their depictions in the tarot cards. Um, and I think that's important to understand when we're looking at what the Tua Dedanon could possibly be. When you start having a lot of the mythology align with alchemy, with um, other mythologies, other mystery schools of knowledge, then I start to think that a lot of the um, characteristics are more representations of frequencies within this electromagnetic realm that we live in. I don't necessarily think those things are historical or um, accurate description, literal descriptions, let's say. But it is something interesting to think about. So, you know, for me, when I look at this, I see the Stone of Destiny, the Coronation Stone, very clearly aligning with the Suit of Pentacles, which is representative representative of the element Earth. Um, just on its face, stones, coins, pebbles, you know, all these things have been used for monetary purposes uh, across the different cultures of, of time and memoriam. And so um, I see an association there. And then the Spear of Lu, well, Lu, well, again, mispronouncing, I don't have all of the <sighs> that <laughs> the proper Irish has, but Lu or Lu, whatever, is one of the two of Danon, and he is associated with the Greek god Apollo. So there is this sun-fire association, and this aligns with the tarot where you have wands being the suit of fire. Um, but I will say that Luch is um, representative of the uh, more, more of like a fall harvest when it comes to actual Irish folklore. So this isn't like a perfect association, but that is something that I um, picked up on. Then the Sword of Light a sort of Nuada. Nuada, again, one of the two Dedanon. This clearly, to me, aligns with swords, the suit of air, and that that makes sense in a way because air is the sign of, like, the mental sphere, and shining a light on something is a colloquialism for making things known on an intellectual level. Um, also, some translations actually say lightning instead of light, and lightning occurs in the air. So to me, this is like, and you also have like literally swords and swords. So to me, that definitely aligns um, with each other. And then the cauldron of Dagda, yet again, Dagda was a Tuatadanan. The cauldron very clearly aligns with cups, the side of water, strictly on the, the uh, you know, it's a vessel for, for holding water, liquid, what have you. Uh, another characteristic of the Tua Dedanon is that they are known as the Shining Ones. We have to recognize here that translating ancient Irish isn't perfect. Um, first of all, Irish just in general is not a, a widely spoken 
language. Um, Ireland has brought about certain policies to try to save it from becoming an extinct language. It is taught in schools and such. Um, there is the Gaeltach in Western Ireland where Irish is still spoken as a first language and there are parts of uh, Northern Ireland that are um, the same way. Although obviously Northern Ireland is found is uh, part of the United Kingdom, so they would not be you know subject to the same policies. But but yeah, they're they're doing things to bring it back. But we don't have the sources for ancient Irish um, like we do for Old English or even Middle English, <laughs> um, partially because some of that was not written down, and then also because. There has been a concerted effort to minimize and destroy uh, Irish folklore, Irish religion, Irish language over the years. So this isn't perfect, and there are a lot of different possible translations of all of these words, but um, one person has translated the uh, the Tua de Danon to possibly be the Shining Ones, or that may be a nickname that they translated, I can't remember. Um, and so, you know, my thought here was, well, okay, why would they be known as the Shining Ones? And I had the thought then that, like, could they have had a stronger bioelectromagnetic field to the point where, you know, our aura, because our aura is our bioelectromechanical field, uh, magnetic field, uh, tongue-tied, um, bioelectromagnetic field. Could they possibly have had a stronger field to the point where their aura was visible? Um, almost like a, uh, uh, you know, a meditating monk can perform certain feats that us regular humans um, do not perform on a regular basis. And it's because they have tapped into something really crazy, really like higher level, you know. And uh, there's a lot of stories of uh, Buddhist monks or whatever doing like some really crazy things. I remember one story about this guy literally healing a necrotic leg through meditation um, just by like thinking about blood flow or something like that. It was wild. Um, and so if there was a more like a godlike race, and they had a stronger bioelectromagnetic field, a stronger aura, to the point where it was visible and they were considered the shining ones, you know, they would also probably have uh, stronger abilities just in general. I would imagine that there would be, um, you know, maybe stronger psych psychic powers, uh, telekinesis, you know, those type of things that may seem uh, extremely godlike to someone who was not capable. And I am sipping on a raspberry guava flavored vodka today from Owltown. Uh, Granddaddy Mims Distilling Company in Blairsville, Georgia. It's really delicious, actually. I'm not typically a vodka person, typically a whiskey person, but that's really, really good. Um, so one of the things that the Tua de Danon are known for in the legend is they battled against the Faur, 
for control of Ireland. Again, my pronunciation is not perfect, but Fowler is actually spelled F-O-M-H-O-I-R-E. <laughs> so, um, but once you put that H with the M, it becomes, it's like Linitian or Eclipsis or one of those, and it becomes like a W sound. Anyway, the Fowler were supposedly from below the sea or were like a human fish amalgamation of some sort, depending again on the legend that you read or uh, the translation really that you're, you're reading off of. And it reminds me so much of the Nomo from the Dogon tradition. We talked about this in the Sirius episode where it's like a, um, you know, a semi amphibious type of uh, race that gave the Dogon a lot of their information about Sirius. But also the, the description of power reminded me of being mermaids and Atlanteans. So um, credit where credit is due, I think possibly that Freeman Fly, where he um, talks about people in his analysis of ancient mythology, uh, I think there might be more to his uh, point there than I initially realized. Um, and we see people in various corporate logos and stuff like that. That's one thing that Freeman is known for is his work with corporate, corporate logos. And obviously Starbucks would be like the most famous um, mermaid logo. But yeah, that was one thing I, I noticed with the Fowler was like, hmm, there may be some, some alignment across uh, traditions there. Eventually the Tua de Danon lost to the Milesians, um, who are supposedly the direct ancestors of the modern Irish. And the way they describe this loss is very similar to like the Americans winning the revolution or the British defeating the Spanish Armada in 1588. It's a place where the supposedly inferior people won. You know, like with the British and the Spanish Armada, you have um, agility of the smaller boats coming into play where they, they were able to outmaneuver the larger Spanish boats. Um, similar idea with the Americans with where, winning the revolution where they were able to utilize guerrilla warfare. Um, you know, same as the Viet Cong in Vietnam. Um, that kind of thing where you're able to get around them. Um, I'm not sure if that's exactly how the Milesians beat the Tua de Danon, but it's the same idea where you've got a battle between a superior species or a superior culture and an inferior species or an inferior culture and the supposedly inferior people won. And it also reminded me of um, how the Neanderthals were supposed to be bigger, stronger, smarter than modern humans, but they were still wiped out by modern humans. But, um, you know, as we discussed in the Nephilim episode, it's entirely possible that defeat wasn't necessarily a, you know, military slaughter so much as more of like a breeding issue because as we discussed in the Nephilim episode, humans and Neanderthals were getting it on quite regularly. <laughs> so um, there may be a little bit of that going on, but either way, it's, you know, it's not unusual or not unheard of for a weaker opponent to win, but it is unusual for that to be memorialized, let's say. So anyway, where did the Tua de Danon go? Well, there is the possibility that they didn't die out. Um, 
And I hate just throwing this out there as like, oh, let's just throw anything to the wall and see if it sticks. Because it seems, you know, it's kind of like the swamp gas explanation for um, like Bermuda Triangle or whatever or anything like that. Where, you know, it's like you could say anything and they're like, oh, it's just swamp gas. Oh, it's just, you know, whatever. But interdimensional beings. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, similar to how one could use statistics to think, sure, there's other alien life out there because there are plenty of planets and it's ridiculous to think that we're the only planet that could host life, you know, that kind of thing. Well, similar to that analysis, I can look at the fact that physicists recognize that there must be many more dimensions beyond the four we perceive in order to explain the universe. Um, I think, uh, what's it called? M-theory requires at least 11 dimensions to work. And then string theory or some type of string theory requires like 26 dimensions or something like that. Anyway... Uh, we recognize that there must be more than the four dimensions that we perceive and it's then possible to infer that there would have to be things that we don't understand or don't even perceive living in those other dimensions so scientifically speaking I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest interdimensional beings it just feels like a cop-out explanation because it's while it's impossible to prove, it's also impossible to disprove. You know what I mean? So from there, how did the Banshee legends come to the United States? Because what a lot of people don't know necessarily in like, say, England and Ireland is that the Banshee is actually quite well known in the United States. Um, Not just in our cheesy paranormal romance novels, (laughs) Um, but also in Scooby-Doo, um, you know, uh, typical, like, you know, it's in all of the Halloween stuff and, and all that. So the Banshee has a, a way of, um, persisting in, uh, American folklore now, just as much as say the vampires or, um, I don't want to say Bigfoot because that's not necess- that's more cryptozoology than like mythological creature, but a uh, werewolf or or something like that. So Banshee is is really up there as far as like the amount of um, spread and popularity of the legend. Well, Scottish and Irish immigrants came to the Americas, in particular to Southern Appalachia, and then down into like Georgia, where you have. Um, you know, a debtor's colony where you are sending a lot of your lower class people, <laughs> Irish and Scottish, at least in the eyes of in- the English, right? And so you've got um, those Irish immigrants coming, you know, Southern Appalachia, say like Virginia down into Florida and, you know, down there in like Georgia and Florida, you have the crackers. Um, fun fact, the word cracker as a slur does not come from the cracking of the whips of slave masters. Uh, that is a false etymology that is claimed in the media these days. It's actually an anti-Irish, anti-Scottish slur that the English used. So you may know like the word wisecrack or wisecracker. Um, 
it's not so much used today, but if you ever watch like the Three Stooges growing up, I mean like the old Three Stooges or anything like that, old TV shows, you may you may know that like, hey, you little wise cracker. Um, well, crack, or as it's spelled in like the, the Irish and the Scottish, it, C-R-A-I-C, I'm telling you, the, Scot- the, the Gaelic language is very interesting. Anyway, it, crack is a word for like shenanigans. So even today, the Irish will say, what's the crack? To mean, how's it going? Or how are you? Or what's up? So the English thought that the Irish and the Scottish were lazy and much more willing to drink and party than to work. And so they started calling them the crackers. And that's where that comes from. But anyway, so in those isolated haulers of Appalachia and, you know, those rural communities, farm communities of Georgia and Florida, where you're keeping a kind of a, a pure, um, pure culture due to isolation, those old Irish legends have been passed down for generations. So actually, even today, especially Southern Appalachia, where it hasn't grown up as much as, say, um, Georgia has with the vast spread of, you know, Atlanta or whatever. Um, but if you go to the mountains of North Carolina, Tennessee, you're actually going to still see a lot of cultural crossover with Ireland and Scotland um, to this day, or at least a crossover with Ireland, Scotland, as they were in the, you know, mid 1800s, where you've got the potato famine and all that, where you have mass migration. So, one thing I wanted to think about was could there be a mundane explanation for the banshee? Because it's so much fun to think about the, like, you know, the possibilities of the paranormal, and it's easy to fall down rabbit holes and, and think, well, it's definitely this wild thing. It is good to think about what could be a more mundane explanation. And one thing I've always understood being a hunter and being from Georgia is that if you hear a baby or a woman crying in the woods in the middle of the night, you do not go toward it because it is not a baby or a woman and you will not enjoy what you find. Um, The bobcat is very well known for sounding like a baby crying and for being very less (laughs) cuddly, much less cuddly than a baby. Um, I have actually personally heard a bobcat and it is an eerie sound. It, um, for me, it didn't sound so much like a baby. And I say that now as someone who has a baby, thinking back to what this sounded like. But definitely a wailing, crying sound. Um, and I was camping alone, so it was a good thing I didn't go towards it. But, um, but it is, it's a very, very eerie sound. And it does not sound like an animal. It sounds much more human-like, or at least this one in particular did. So when I hear the story of the Banshee, I see a lot of overlap because you hear a woman crying or wailing at night, but a bobcat makes a similar sound, um, is a nocturnal animal, and typically lives a solitary existence. So it's not going to sound like a uh, a pack of coyotes would, where you've got multiple animals involved. It's going to sound like one single... um, animal or entity or person as it were so it it makes me think that some of those stories could be a bobcat especially where you have Irish immigrants in the south keeping the folklore alive so I wanted to know if bobcats or something similar live in Ireland because if that's the case then it's possible that a lot of this is a case of misidentification feeding into 
the old folklore? And the short answer is no, there are no bobcats. But the longer answer is not anymore because the bobcat is a type of lynx and one of its cousins is the Eurasian lynx. And the Eurasian lynx actually did live in Ireland back in the day. The Eurasian lynx used to have a distribution that stretched from Western Europe all the way to the Himalayas, which blows my mind because that is a massive range. Um, you know, I think of coyotes being everywhere, and they are in America, but um, but to stretch across Russia, plus all you know Europe, but Russia, like the largest country in the world right now as far as landmass goes. Um, I mean, obviously it's not tip to tip in Russia, but the Himalayas are not exactly next to the Caucasus. So it's just like wild to me that we had that large of a distribution, but obviously now habitat loss and um, hunting have, have reduced that significantly. In Ireland, the lynx was hunted to local extinction in the Middle Ages. Um, and so that was done to protect uh, protect their uh, their crops, um, their herds, their their farming um, structures. Right. Uh, the lynx is not the only predator that was hunted to local extinction in Ireland, um, but definitely was one of the ones that was. And the Middle Ages is a long time ago, so it's possible that the legends kind of built up around misidentifications way back in the day and then now it's just the power of suggestion and nostalgia for the Irish folklore does kind of the rest um, but you're not going to still have misidentification now because the Eurasian lynx is no longer present but where you've got people taking over that legend in the southern United States um, I would imagine that a lot of that still today is misidentification. Now, one thing I want to go back to um, that we briefly touched on in the very beginning of this story was the fairy mounds. And the fairy mounds are possibly one of the biggest mysteries in Irish... Um, I, I mean history, archaeology, uh, cartography, you know, everything really. Um, the fairy mounds are these like, eh, they look similar to like Indian burial mounds, um, but, but different in the sense that, you know, a lot of times the Indian burial mounds in America will literally be uh, earthen works all the way down to the ground and it'll be smooth so it, it really does just like look like this random little hill but a lot of the fairy mounds actually have these uh, rock rings stone rings around the base of them and then have an earthen mound on top um, and then some of them appear to have more just that earthen ring and not necessarily the I'm sorry more just the stone ring and not necessarily the earthen mound and then some have like almost a full earthen mound and you can kind of see the stone peeking out in a couple places but it um 
it's you know probably time more than anything and then some actually are just really this earthen mound similar to the uh, Indian burial mounds um, if you've ever seen those but there are between 30 and 40,000 of them in Ireland and Ireland is not a big place so I mean you gotta think these are very prevalent and they are just odd um, but because they're so prevalent there's so many of them there could be uh, multiple explanations and that's what I think we've got going on but I mean as far as like the amount of space that we it, we have um, let me see what side what state Ireland is most similar to in size because for me I you know uh, unfortunately the American in me um, thinks of things in states and I don't really have a concept of um, geography in any other way so Ireland is roughly the size of Indiana and Indiana is not big enough for 30 to 40,000 random mounds that is wild that's even more wild than I realized. Um, I mean, I knew Ireland was bigger than like Rhode Island, but I didn't have a concept of how much smaller it was than say Georgia or Texas or whatever. Um, so that is that is wild. And so there's speculation about what these burial mounds are, uh, what these fairy mounds are, sorry. Are they burial mounds? Are they ruins of old communities? My opinion is that there are three kinds. Like I said, when you have 30 to 40,000, you're not going to have necessarily one explanation for all of them. Or at least there's a strong possibility that there's not one explanation for all of them. In my mind, there are three. You have the pure originals, you have the originals with additions, and you have the copycats. So let me explain what I mean. Some of these mounds to me are very clearly megalithic sites. I mentioned the stone work. Those stones on some of them are massive, are truly megaliths. So some of these mounds are very clearly made by megalithic cultures. Some are very clearly not. As I said, some of these are just an earthen mound with no stonework visible. So my guess is that there are true megalithic sites, the sites um, where it was built and kind of left untouched except for what maybe happened with, you know, with time. For example, you know, Stonehenge, not in Ireland, but, you know, it's not like someone has altered it other than the stones have fallen due to time. Then we've got the sites where later Irish people decided to add on their own flavor. This would be similar to how, say, the Parthenon is built on an older megalithic site, or how the Sphinx originally had a, a lion head, and then uh, one of the pharaohs decided he wanted to have his face on it, so he had the head of it recarved in his own honor. And then, in my mind, we've got other mounds that uh, 
are just copycats. Later Irish attempted to just out and out copy the original mounds, but were unable to truly do so because the technology had been lost. Um, ultimately, I think the sheath are these ancient megalithic rings, um, the, the true originals. Now, Graham Hancock and his buddies have done great work showing um, that we've got truly ancient megalithic sites um, across the world today. Um, Great Pyramids, Gobekli Tepe, Baalbek, um, several others. We do not have the technology to rebuild these sites today. Our construction machinery is not strong enough um, or precise enough. Uh, I know that I watched a History Channel special or one of those channels, something similar, you know, History or History Channel adjacent special on the Parthenon. And they were having to try, they were trying to replace some of the stones. And this wasn't even in the, the super, um, super ancient uh, base. This was actually in the top portion. And with our construction machinery and our capabilities, it was still nearly impossible for them to fit the stones together in such a way to match the ancient work. Um, we, we do not have the stonemasons today that we once did unfortunately that's a lost art um but the great pyramid i mean we just can't build it right we can't build it we can't transport those stones we can't uh do all of the very incredibly precise um joints on the stones to make them fit together perfectly in such a way it's just not something that we can do. And a lot of times in these ancient myth megalithic sites, and I don't know what the case is for the Irish sheath, the, the fairy mounds, is that the stones that they use are found or are quarried like hundreds of miles away, um, not even right next door. Now, in Ireland, that's going to be a little more difficult than, say, Egypt, where you've got an entire continent attached to it. Uh, Ireland, you're dealing with a much smaller um, just geographical range. Uh, I know that Stonehenge um, is not, you know, does not have the same site, sort of um, range that the Great Pyramids did as far as where those stones were quarried from. I imagine that Newgrange and the other Irish sites are similar to Stonehenge in their range. Um, but there's just so much unknown about these megalithic cultures, these megalithic sites. And it lends itself towards legend and mythology in the same way that the Tuatadanan and the Irish fairy rings do. Now, to me, the most compelling theory that I've seen on how these ancient civilizations built um, all of these sites is that they supposedly used to have the ability to move s objects using sound. Um, I briefly mentioned it in one of the other episodes in regards to that guy uh, building like a grotto in his backyard in Florida with like the coral... Uh, and all that, but I, I do not remember that guy's name, and I forgot to look it up. Um, 
but it makes sense that if we don't have the technology to build it, then we may not have the understanding to conceptualize what their use was. So why not speculate out of the box? And I think that those fairy mounds have a distinct possibility that they were built as portals to allow the interdimensional beings to jump dimensions. Because if we're going to dive into this, let's dive off, right? Um, there are actually Irish legends about the fairy mounds being the types of portal, um, and that carries over into modern fiction, uh, not just in those cheesy paranormal romances I mentioned earlier, but also, for example, in um, Artemis Fowl. They use Terra, um, which is one of the most uh, sacred sites in Ireland. They use Terra as a, as a portal jumping or like an elevator or something. I don't remember. It's been forever since I read Artemis Fowl. Um, but yeah, so there is some sort, there is some speculation in the uh, various levels of fiction um, that the fairy mounds are portals. And I think it makes sense if you're going to speculate that the Tua de Danon could be interdimensional beings. Um, so I think it's probable that the ancient gods of Irish mythology, um, but also even, you know, Greek, Roman, Egyptian, and so on, that they are actually the leaders of some of these ancient megalithic peoples. I'm not going to claim it's like, these are the people. It's probably the kings. Um, and there is some reason to believe that these are more like histories than theologies um you know even the bible and the quran which we have today as theological documents they're heavily historical and as ralph ellis has shown um they may be more like histories of the hyksos egyptian kings and their descendants than we even realize in mainstream christianity and the Irish legends do reflect a more historical nature, I would say, than the Greek and Roman and Egyptian mythology. Um, you know, Egyptian mythology has a lot of, like, uh, really unbelievable things. Um, for example, Isis impregnating herself by piecing Osiris's body back together and then sticking a wooden phallus uh, and then possibly floating above his body as a hawk or crane or one of those um, and then also you know obviously in the hieroglyphs and all that you've got the Egyptian gods being represented as like human bodies with animal heads uh, and then you know Greek and Romans uh, a lot of us are very familiar with these because of high school studying the Iliad and the Odyssey and all that um, but I mean they're very clearly like this is a god and he is on this mountain and he yes he has relations in the biblical sense with all of these mortal ladies um, but his kids are not as strong as he is or whatever I, you know I mean it's it's a little bit outlandish uh, you know there's ones where 
doesn't Zeus have sex with a swan or something like that? I, there's just a lot. Um, but the Irish legends, I mean, yes, there is a little bit of outlandish stuff, but a lot of times you've got a king or something like that becoming a quote-unquote god. Um, they're not necessarily as strict in their definition of god as Greek and myth- Roman mythology are. Um, they definitely reference kings or great Irish um, warriors or Irish leaders. Uh, I know that um, Oshin, I think, is one that was an Irish warrior who went to uh, the promised land, essentially, for like 300 years with his uh, lady friend who was one of the fae folk and then he ended up coming back and dying I don't know I can't remember exactly but there's a lot of like warriors kings and stuff like that and also Irish mythology is a lot more goddess heavy than um, even Greco-Roman mythology as I said Danu is like the primary deity versus or at least the mother deity versus uh, Zeus, Jupiter, obviously being the head of the Olympians in Greco-Roman mythology. And it's possible that the fact that they aren't so like blatant about calling their gods gods in the um, in the Irish mythology is part of that Christian revisionism we talked about before. Um, but it may also just be that the Tuatha and their watered-down cousins, the Ishi and the Banshee, were more like kings, elites, noble men and women than gods. Um, at least it's something to think about and consider. And I'll be interested to see as I study further into other mythologies how this continues to line up. So, what have we learned? Well, I think it's entirely possible that nearly all of the Banshee sightings in America are bobcats. Especially when you consider the fact that the Banshees supposedly only really come to pure Irish bloodlines. And I mean, we just don't have pure bloodlines in America. Everyone's intermarried so much. Um, You know, I'm a perfect example. My ancestors have been in America. Well, the earliest ancestors were in America um, before the Mayflower, and then some ancestors were on the Mayflower. But then some parts, the the newest parts of my family uh, are like 150 years old, just after the Civil War that came over from Sweden and Norway. So, I mean, at the very least, we're talking 150 plus years to... Um, 400 years in America and uh, I have ancestry of like 20 different countries (laughs) granted most of them are very pale and they are very um, very much in the northern European uh, section of, (laughs) of Europe but it is something to consider that you know, if the Banshee only comes to pure bloodlines, they're really not going to be spending time in America. And with the prevalence of the Bobcat, it's almost a hundred percent, I would say, that when people think they're hearing the Banshee, they're actually hearing 
a bobcat. Um, now, I mean, I guess depending on the woods you're in, it could be like ghosts or something like that. But in general, you're probably hearing a bobcat. Now, Irish sightings are a little bit different. I do think that while it's not necessarily the, the Euro- Eurasian lynx now, that it could have been the Eurasian lynx back in the day, you know, Middle Ages and earlier. I think it's entirely possible, like we discussed with the Champ episode, that people get something in their mind and they expect some, you know, it to be something. And so that's what they think they hear. Uh, also, quoting Sharon Osbourne, if it's in Ireland, I believe it. Um, so, you know, there's. <laughs> There's a lot of ghosts and that kind of thing in Ireland. It's entirely possible that they also have um, ghost sightings uh, or hearings. I wonder what a sighting is called when all you do is hear the thing. Hmm. Incidents. But you're not going to have, you know, the links now. You're not going to have... Um, you know, some animal walk out of the woods and be able to explain this. So more modern sightings are a little more complicated in Europe. Um, in Ireland in particular, uh, you know, while Scotland, Ireland, Wales, none of them have the links and haven't had for some time. So they're not going to be something that's easily debunked, unfortunately. Now, again, a lot of these sightings are going to be hearing are going to be incidents where something's only heard and not seen. So even if five people hear it, if you don't see the thing, it's going to be a lot more difficult to prove or disprove what it is, but it's a lot more likely also that your brain is playing tricks on you. And I think that's the case with a lot of these things. At the same time, I think that the Tua Dananen are really, really fascinating and I really want to understand more about them and more about the possibility of a megalithic culture in Ireland thousands and thousands of years ago. But what do you think? Let me know. Um, tweet at me. Do the uh, comment on the episode. Um, leave a review. Rate. Comment review email me if you have a question um other than that i will see you again in the next episode hopefully with a better microphone